I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery... For me, I wanted to be in control of, of my addictions by the time I was 40. And so I had a time limit. It was like, okay, this is what we're going we're gonna to figure it out. You know, I think when we first left, I was a little bit in denial as to what, how... Addicted? How addicted to alcohol I really was. I think it was, he, he was kind of was an easy scapegoat, you know. It took a little bit of time for me to realize that that I had a problem. And um, so the goal for me was um, to find peace and to find happiness. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. And because of our friends over at KnowYourScript.org, we're allowed to do this every week. Uh, if you want to find out more information about the opioid epidemic, uh, kind of resources to talk to yourself, your doctor, uh, it's great. KnowYourScript.org. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. How are you, buddy? I'm great. Hey, so uh, we're going to let people kind of behind the scenes of the podcast for this first segment. Okay. Uh, we're recording this on a thursday it mm-hmm. doesn't drop until a tuesday correct tomorrow is my three-year anniversary nice yeah <laughs> three years which i'm so mixed about it because um i mean I'm, I'm super stoked but three years in on one hand seems like it's been an eternity and on the other hand, it seems like it was just yesterday. And so I'm still trying to navigate uh, recovery and trying to figure it out. Just yesterday, I was talking to somebody and they said, so, because I was telling them that I was coming up on my three-year anniversary and they go, so how's it been? And I go, and I really hadn't stopped and thought about it. And so I stopped and I was like, you want to know what the craziest thing is, is three years ago. I could have never imagined my life being this good as it is right now. Like, even if you would have said, hey, listen, Casey, tomorrow you're sober. How do you want your life to look? I would have come up with something of, you know, kind of similar to what I'm doing. But it would this far surpasses my expectations of the life I have right now. So even just compared life before to life now, now is better. A hundred percent better. It's still harder. I'm still not making the money I was. I still have daily reminders of the past life, but I sleep better. I have better 
conversations with my children, with my family, with I my think coworkers. I've, I think I've noticed that, that you seem more connected to your kids. I'm 100% connected to my kids. And I'm so blessed for that. But like when we've heard people on the podcast before talk about recovery and they go, imagine being sober. And life is 100% better than just what you're imagining. And I know that's not going to be the case for everybody. And I'm very fortunate. I've got a great support system. I have a wonderful girlfriend, great family, great ex-wife, great workers. I've been co-workers. And and, and life is – it's amazing. But it's better than I could have ever imagined. Okay. So I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Okay. Because I would say that when you're you know a person in midlife – uh, the things that are important to you that kind of you judge how good your life is, is your physical health. I think that's one. Uh, family relationships, including romantic relationships, that's two. And then your career mm-hmm. and, and where that's going is three. So kind of go through those three for me. So like physical health. I'm 100% stronger than I was in my 20s and my 30s. And I'm knocking on the door of 48. Um, I, I work out six days a week. I'm stronger. Uh, I'm healthier. I eat better. Because in the past, I think you you golfed a lot, but yeah. you didn't work out. I worked out, but it was it wasn't the working out to get healthier. It was working out to maintain. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, sure. because I knew that I was damaging my body, so I justified it by working out, and oh, so okay. I thought they okay. would just kind of even each other out. Okay. Yeah, I drank 18 beers, but I also ran three and a half miles and lifted weights for 45 minutes. So yeah. in my warped brain, I was like, we're breaking I, even, bro. I don't, I mean, that is warped, but I don't think that's uncommon. I think that's a very, people do it with food all the time. You know, you hear people say that, oh, I ate like crap last night, so I'm going to go to the gym today. And it's like, eh, it's tough to balance out those bad habits with exercise. And I even rationalized it and justified it by saying, if I didn't work out in the morning, I couldn't drink in the evening. Oh, okay. So I would force myself. So I, you were working out a fair amount, but you feel like you're healthier now? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. Because I'm do not. You bench? What do you bench now? You know, I, I, I don't bench for weight. I, and that's another thing about me when you talk about personal. I don't and, really know what I'm talking about. It sounded like a, <laughs> sounded like a manly yeah. thing to say, you know, what, what's your bench? But I'm more secure in who I am today than I have ever been. Physically. Physically and mentally and emotionally. I mean, it's like I used to like I would sit down and go, what do you bench? And then I would find out what you are. And then I would have to beat you because that was my ego. Yeah. Now I go. That wouldn't be too hard in our case. But now I go. Good for you. Yeah. I know what my limitations are and I know what I can do. All right. And, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to one up everybody. I'm not trying to be. So that's good. So you're feeling kind of grounded emotionally. Yeah. You moved away from my question, but that's still helpful information to know. I but, like it. But go back to your question. What was your question? No, we're done. We're moving on. Now, number two was I want to know like relationship wise, the, the important relationships in your life, uh, your kids, your, your girlfriend, your, um, Dr. Matt, all those important relationships. How do you feel about them? My kids, my relationship with my kids is is better than it's ever been. And uh, when they were younger and I was in my active addiction, I thought I was the world's greatest dad. Because you were around a lot. I know you did a lot with your kids back then. I was checking all the boxes. They yeah. had the ski passes. They had the new clothes. They had the slides. They had everything they wanted. I thought that's what they needed. I feel like the way to say it is when a person's in their active addiction and they're trying to be a good parent, they're around their kids a lot, mm-hmm. but they're not with their kids. Like they're not, that connection is hard to make because you're intoxicated. 
Do you know uh, Jim Henson had kind of a lazy eye? Uh, Miss the Muppet creator. You know how I know this? I don't. Because I was laying in bed with my son last night, and he's a big fan of puppeteers. And he's reading this uh, biography on Jim Henson. Yeah. And my son's got kind of a skiwampus eye. Okay. And he thinks Jim Henson is his idol, and he wants to be a puppeteer. Oh, that's awesome. So I laid in bed talking with my son about puppets for 15 minutes. And we had the most amazing conversation. That actually sounds And great. I'm yeah. actually go, getting teared up because I was like, we never had those. Because I would just want him to go to bed because at the end of the day, I was beat. I'd been drinking, and I just needed to recharge my batteries. But we sat up, and we talked for 15 minutes about puppets. And it was was awesome. That's cool. And I talked to him. I helped my daughter answer her boyfriend to the dance last night. Hmm. She's like, Dad, what are we going to do? And I said, I'm going to Smith's. I'll find out. So I walked around Smith's, and I came up with this idea. I got a poster board. I didn't know that's where you went to figure those things out. No, I do, awesome. because I, was, I, I get inspired by the stuff that's around me. Okay, I, I said, it. I'll come up with an idea. Okay. So I'm walking around. I called her up, and I said, hey, look, I just walked by some cheese and a poster board. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this cheese, and we're going to paint it on the poster board and go, this is cheesy. But yes. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> and so I've got a picture right here. I'll show you. Yeah, let's see it. And, uh, and so I did that with her. And then my middle child, Frankie, got home from dance, and we talked about dance for 15 minutes. And these are conversations that I never would have had You in can't the past. be present for those when you're drinking, right? No, because I'm not in a right frame of mind. I'm not really there. So it was it, – it, so, yeah, on your second question, and my mom, my mom's like – she told me the other day, she's like, wow, you actually call me back. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, you never called me back. You always had an excuse to get off the phone. You never had conversations with me. I go and sit with my dad every Sunday from uh, 8.30 to 10.30 as he plays cribbage with his friends just to hang out with him because he's not golfing anymore. Oh, okay. You know, and so – and I talk to my brothers and uh, – I love it. We need to throw this up on uh, Facebook. Yeah. This is cheesy. Yes. And so I'm, I'm, and my girlfriend, and we, we, we talk, and we see how we can help each other out, rather than me just trying to get a laugh and get out of the room. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's where I based all my value on, is are you laughing and having a good time? Well, I think that second one should sell a lot of people on looking into recovery. But let's go to number three. This might be the harder one. How's the career? My career is amazing. I work for two great companies, yeah. Mountain View Title and Miki Couture. And I'm a marketer for them, and mm-hmm. I do whatever they ask me. Uh, and they give me the freedom to do this podcast. They give me the freedom to go out and talk to groups. And I'm finding myself having a great time in this. I get that. That's probably the biggest question I get. When are you getting back on TV? And my answer now is I don't know if I will. I haven't heard you talk much about it in a year. Because my life is so much better right now. I, I get to wake up with my kids. And I get to see them. But you're making school. less money, you said. I'm making less money. Yeah. But but the money will come if I want it. But I'm making my bills, and I'm not going So without. what does that tell you about the money? Money's not everything. It's not. It's not. Yeah. And so much as the fact is that I just – I pulled up this email because I wanted to talk about that. I didn't think we were going to that other stuff. But at the end of the month, I'm talking to the Women Empowered Conference up in Ogden. Mm-hmm. And they want to talk about being resilient and coming from rock bottom and making your mess your message. And so I was talking to a friend of mine. Her name is Emily Euler. And she's like, I looked online to get a headshot for you because we're going to put it up in front of the breakout session that you're going to be leading. What picture do you want? And we just got some new pictures done here of headshots. And I said, you know what? 
use my mugshot. <laughs> You're gonna say, that. and she goes, "Why?" And I because that was me. And one of the things I want to talk about is owning your mistakes. Yeah. And I and I can tell you right now. That isn't me, but that was me. And when I sit down and talk to a big group of women, I'll go, you know what? If we want to comb through your lives, chances are there's a mugshot of your life that you're not happy about. I think that's brilliant because what does everybody put out on social media? All their Their best best, foot forward. Their best face. It's all airbrushed. It's all that kind of stuff. And I think the reality is most of the time we feel like the other guy or gal, right? Because life can be hard and rake us over the coals. So that's great. I love it. Plus, you could play like a Nick Nolte lookalike thing with his mugshot. One thing that I've noticed in my recovery over the three years is the importance of owning your mistakes. And if I own that mistake and I show that mugshot and I go up there, I've taken all the power from you to tell me what a mess up I am and how bad I screwed up. Because I know I'm still paying for it. But if I don't admit it and, and I own that, you no longer have that power. I got a mugshot. Yeah. So what? Yeah. You know what? If we wanted to search mugshots daily like I do, <laughs> you know. <laughs> what? Yeah. That's a website. It is? Yeah. Oh, I okay. used to watch on uh, Ogden Standard. If I show Standard, up there, let me know. I used to watch on Ogden Standard Examiner, the mugshots daily. I used to go back <laughs> to see how many pages I'd have to go back until I saw somebody I knew. <laughs> I think you got a little extra time on your hands, buddy. Well, this is when I didn't have a license and I didn't have oh, a okay. job. Fair now enough. I don't go there that often. But- I own my mistakes, yeah, no, and I can't change the past, and it's not who I am, and I'm not defined by that. It was a crucial time in my life where I was presented with a decision. Do I want to live like this, or do I want to change? And I want to change, and tomorrow will be three years, and it's the best decision I ever made. My life is better. I'm doing great. I still have bad days. I do have constant reminders of my past, but I can't let that hold me down, and I just keep moving forward. Well, if it makes any difference, I'm proud of you. Well, I'm I really it. not just that, but impressed. I've been very, very impressed with not just where you've gotten to, but the process. Like there, people don't see all the hard things because you are such an optimist and your natural presence in any room is very positive and upbeat. But they don't they don't know. I, I mean, I teased you about riding your kid's bike to get groceries, but that's hard. That That kind of stuff. The reality is. Um, you had to hit a rock bottom to dig your way out, and you did it, and you keep doing it. And for the I, first I couldn't be of more this podcast, impressed. I took the train here. Oh, I know, and, and had to walk and beg people for rides. That's I think why all, all our guests, all from our guests were from Ogden. Yeah, so I could hit get a ride, ride home. home. With them. Yeah, but hey, I also want to tell you that I'm proud to be your friend, and thanks for letting me be on the show with you. Well, thanks for going along this ride with me, and I love you. I really do, and I mean it. Uh, we've got a great guest couple guests for you today on the podcast. Uh, they traveled the world as they search for the recovery. We're going to find out more about them. It's Palouse and Cast. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guests today are Palouse. Am I saying that right? You are. Palouse and uh, Cass. And uh, we got you guys from a good friend of the show, Rob Eastman. Uh, if you follow him on Instagram, uh, he's been doing kind of a breathing technique with you guys and ice baths. And we're going to find out more about that later on in the program. But you've got kind of an amazing uh, addiction to recovery story. Where does that all begin? Well, we're both uh, from here in Utah, and um, we met about 11 years ago. And uh, first part of our relationship together was full of a lot of parties, a lot of drinking, a lot of shenanigans. Um, Lots. Yeah. And about, uh, so that kind of is that first chapter of our relationship together. And then um, six years into it, we uh, were having a big party one night, and you want to tell yeah, what happened? so, you know, we were partying it up, and on, on the outside, it looked like we were... You know, just a typical, you know, living the American uh, lifestyle. You know, Cass uh, had a cleaning company. I ran a plastic recycling company. And uh, but deep down, we were we were functioning addicts. And um, <clears throat> and we kind of justified our, our our addictions because we always got up for work and got <laughs> stuff done. And um, but one one day, uh, one night, you know, we were partying. It was a really really big party, good party. And um, you know, it was about seven in the morning. We're all strung out. People are passed out on the floor. It's a mess and. And uh, we started cleaning up, and I looked at Cass, and I, I, I told her, I, I looked at her, and I said, I could do this for the rest of my life. And you said you could do this. I could do this for the rest of my life. And I before just, we get into that story, before you guys had met, let's go back a little bit of time on both of you. So, Cass, you said you grew up here in yeah. Utah. Um, what was your first experience with alcohol or drugs? My first experience with alcohol was abroad, actually. I, I traveled when I was 19. I went and lived in London, and it was a big drinking culture, little Mormon girl going out to the big city of London, lots of pubs, lots of drinking, um, kind of left the Mormon church at that point. Um, that was a pretty big moment in my life. Um, and then when I came back, I um, met Palouse very shortly after that. And um, it was quite a wild ride since then. So, but you got into alcohol not because of like trauma or. Well, so when I was a teen, I was dealing with an eating disorder. I was I had bulimia, and um, so I had kind of gotten some help for that in my late teens. But one thing I didn't realize was going on into my adulthood that I hadn't really fully recovered from from that eating disorder. So then you throw in alcohol into this mix of restriction and binging and restriction and binging with food. Alcohol definitely played that, um, went along with that pendulum swing. So um, that's, that's kind of like I was using alcohol to cope with my anxieties that I was having around food. Now, Dr. Mesh, she said something that's kind of interesting where she goes, I wasn't fully recovered from bulimia. And I think there's a lot of people out there that have maybe dipped their toe into therapy or into recovery in, in, in some way, shape or form. And sometimes, uh, you know, we go, well, I think I got this. I think I know where this is going. And so now I'm a little more prepared and I'm going into this not fully equipped, but I've got some tools. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, that's recovery or, you know, whether it's recovery from a mental health issue or recovery from a substance abuse issue, it is a process. And you also have to take into account a person's developmental age. I mean, 19 years old, we're still pretty young and things are brand new. And so um, it's often the case, just like where we expect relapse in 
in substance abuse recovery, we sort of expect the ups and downs in recovery from significant mental health issues. So, yeah, I mean, bulimia is uh, is a pretty tough disorder to to fully recover from, and it takes time and takes pro- the process. And so uh, throwing alcohol in there would definitely complicate that. So now we'll go to Palouse. Uh, you grew up in here in Utah as well? Yeah, so I was uh, born in France. My dad was uh, – he was French, and uh, when I was eight years old, our whole family immigrated to uh, Utah. And so we have a, a five – Seven, seven people in our family, so pretty big. And uh, I mean, from what I know of the French, uh, I mean, they they like to party. Uh, they they yes. they're down for the fun. <laughs> so was alcohol prevalent in your home growing up as a child? Um, actually, no. Um, you know, we we came back here. We're, we were raised LDS, and um, that's actually where a lot of my trauma came from: is mommy daddy issues and 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 to church. And you know, I left the church uh, when I was about fourteen years old. And, um, and long story short, I never went on a mission and my uh, mother disowned me. She, uh, she put a restraining order on me uh, three years after I graduated high school and uh, I was on a street. And um, that's where my substance abuse and everything else went, uh, suicide uh, attempts and many different things. So, Wow, that's, that's pretty dramatic. Just for listeners that may not be familiar, uh, it's expected – that uh, young men and it's an option for young women to serve a full-time proselytizing mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and that can be a big conflict in homes when when kids uh, get to that age of, I guess back in your day it was 19, 19. now it's 18. Um, but yep. uh, when they get to that age and, and they don't want to do it. But that's a pretty dramatic response compared to some of the other ones I've heard. Uh, can you... Talk a little bit more about uh, were, were you the oldest in the family? Did other siblings go on missions? Like, what? Wh- how did that play out family wise? Yeah, well, actually, I'm the black sheep. I'm right in the middle. Uh, my older brother he went on a mission. Um, you know, he was always looked at as as the good one. You know, and so I had to compete with that. And uh, and when I didn't go, he was on his mission when I turned to 19. And and um, so when that didn't happen, the pressure, you know, it happened. Wow. So his mother's a lovely person. Yeah, we, we've we've come a, we've come a long ways, and re, and it's, it was a long time of uh, of um, you know disliking, and and I mean there's some some a lot of hate behind it, which caused a lot of the a lot of the addiction stuff that went along with it. But just to let you know, I I do love my mother, and we are we're good. So well, and I think that just to throw that in there, I mean. Parenting's a tough gig. Yeah, we, we we don't know how to do it. Maybe till we're done <laughs> parenting. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I I think that's a pretty dramatic response from your mom. But I'm glad to hear you guys have been able to patch that up. I know you love it when I do this, but I saw this thing on Facebook the other day <laughs> yeah, where you get all your news. Yep, where I ahead. get all my news yep. and all my life uh, parenting hacks. Yeah, but that's it's a good it, spot for it, it. It said this interesting thing. It goes: as parents, we are watching our kids grow up. But what we don't realize, our kids are also watching their parents grow up. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, is that, you know, your mom was probably doing what your mom thought was best yes. and, and doing what she knew. And so, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I, and, and I don't want to spoil the surprise, but kids are like, <laughs> hey, as parents, we don't know everything. Yeah. You know, uh, we don't have all the answers. You know, a lot right. of this stuff we're figuring out right along with you. And we're trying to get it as we as, as we go. That's true. So when you were in high school, Palouse, uh, any partying? No, I was a I was a good uh, I was a good Mormon kid. 
um, up until I mean I, I followed everything. I still hung out with the neighbors and the ward and all that kind of stuff. And so this was kind of like a, it wasn't until I got kicked out that's when it, everything I just I didn't care anymore. See, your guys' story is kind of unique. In fact, that you're two people who kind of got into partying at 19. Uh, and, and for this podcast and our guests, that's late in life for them to right. experiment and start getting into alcohol and drugs. We haven't got to the drugs yet, and I don't know if that's even a part of your story. But oh, yeah. we're going to go back to you guys were partying, and you woke up uh, the aftermath, people sleeping on the couches, cleaning up things, and you looked at Caspaloose and said, I could do this for the rest of my life. Yeah, and um, at that point, I just started sobbing. I just started crying um, because it just—it was the emptiness that I, that I felt like, oh, my God, this is what I'm living for, like every single day, every single weekend. It, it, there was no purpose in life. And so we were right there, and I'm just sobbing, and she's starting to cry. And, 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 and you know, we've made some really crazy, like, decisions when we've been drunk and, or high, and this is one of them. We said we got to leave. You know, I've tried to, we've tried to get out, and, and we've always go back to, you know, our environments, our friends. And, and so. So let me jump in there. So it sounds like there was a big flip-flop right there in that story. So I just want to make sure I understand. You know, it's 7 a.m., you're cleaning up after a night of partying. And for a moment, you turn to Cass and say, I could do this for the rest of my life. But then right on the heels of that, you had a kind of an overwhelming feeling of emptiness. Is that right? Yeah, it was just, it was all at the in, in a minute. It was just like I could do this rest of my life, but it's not really what I want. Uh, and okay. and so it's just that's that's the the, the Palouse party, the party guy that was like, I could do this. But deep down inside, I was hollow and it wasn't really making me happy. And how, about how old were you at that time? 38. So you'd put in a couple decades of partying. Yeah, a good 20 years, and yeah. I did it well because I had to catch up from, you know, not doing it when I was 12. And so I just went <laughs> crazy, you know, like any, it was a contest every time I went out, and, and I was pretty good at it. Oh, now, I, I, I will say that is – that's a common theme is, that we hear a lot on this show, including from you, Casey, where it's like – if you think you can drink, I can drink better. Yes, yeah, and that's I was just exactly. always just to this extreme, and I was like, I'm doing it better than everybody else. People are like, Why'd you get so drunk? I go, I thought that was the goal. <laughs> right? yeah, you were you were in a competition, but you were the only one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you guys at 38 decide you want to go. Um, I mean, this is your story, so you can say what you want. Was it just alcohol? Was it? Well, I mean, what were you guys partying with? You know, what it was uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, for, for me, um, you know, it was, you know, pornography and sex. It was alcohol. It was psychedelics. It was ecstasy. Um, you know, it was cocaine. Yeah, cocaine. Um, it was a little bit of everything, but mostly alcohol was our, our vice. But we it was were, an addiction to the stimulation yeah. of the party, right? So it didn't really necessarily didn't matter, matter which vice it was at that moment. It was an addiction to that, that high and that rush of you know, getting ready for the big thing. And, and I'm know, guessing that it sounds like you had a reputation. So is, is that right? It, like you were throwing parties, like partying yeah. around. People wanted to hang out with you guys because of the parties, which I think is also – cool. <laughs> and, and way cool, of course. Come on. Handsome, beautiful, cool, and partiers. But, like, the reason I bring it up is that's often one of the things that's also hard to break out of because I think that's where we're getting here in your story is you felt like you had to make a dramatic break. Uh, obviously, there's the, the physical and social addiction. But when, when, that's, when you're the center of fun, so to speak, uh, that's almost – it becomes part of your identity, 
And that break changing your identity, I think, can be just as hard as overcoming a drinking problem. When you've got everything that you want to do what you want, like they had, and it sounds like it, the lifestyle is just as addicting as the substance in itself. Yeah. You know, the chaos, the parties, the ups, the downs, everything it is. It's the stories you tell all week long yes, after the it's, party. It's the lifestyle. You know, and there's many times that you would live on a story for a month and people would come up and yeah. say, hey, I want to be a part of that. So now you feel like I'm in charge of these people's happiness and their fun. And they look to us for a reprieve. And, and I'm inserting myself in this because a lot of times I felt like that with the way I did it. When people finally got a chance to party with the fun pig or Casey. See money. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, as silly as that sounds, I wanted to give them what they wanted. It was like a public yes. service. Yeah. But, but, but that's how you, that's how you sell that. it to yourself, right? Yeah. It's like, hey, we look, look, all these things we're doing for these people and they're coming to our house and we're giving them joy and we're giving them excitement. So Cass, when Palouse says, hey, we got to get out. What is your thoughts? I looked around and I thought this is pathetic that we could do this for the rest of our lives. <laughs> this is not the direction that I want to be going. This is not where I want to see myself in 20 years. And um, travel has always been something a passion that we both had a passion for and still do. Um, we often say now with our with our classes, the breath is medicine, but for us, travel is also a medicine. It's a way for us to go on a journey, and it uh, breaks us up from our environment and helps us figure some things out. Like we'd always done these different solo trips throughout this time, uh, throughout our relationship in the past, and so when we had the idea to to leave, it it felt right. It felt like the thing to do. Yeah, we needed to go. So, what does that look like? How do you begin? To go find yourself. I want to make a quick comment, yes. though. Like, neurologically, uh, one of the things we know, like, I, I think the reason that things like travel can feel so, so therapeutic to a person is what changes neurochemically when you are getting ready to go on a trip. And so one of the things we know is that alert system heads, you know, where are we going? What are we doing? So epinephrine starts kind of pumping through your brain. And then there's the the anticipatory uh, dopamine, which kind of gets us so excited and feeling good for things. So I think a lot of times people who are in recovery really enjoy travel and excitement, or you use the word adventures, I think, yeah. like going on adventures, because that adventurous stuff does give us kind of a natural high. Absolutely. I like that. That's yeah. how, that's. Absolutely I never really true. thought about the, chem, the the chemical aspect of it, but for sure I can relate to that. Every time we were traveling and would get ready to move to the next place, there was that that anticipation yeah. uh, to move on. So yeah. So I mean, and I think we see that here in the state of Utah a lot, where people who are in recovery enjoy. Uh, doing outdoor adventures start to become sort of part of their life where they, they find – I talk to them about – they're like, Hikes. oh, we went to this place and some place I've never heard of. Oh, have you been here? And I'm like, no, I don't. I haven't. I'd love to. But, you know, I think it's that anticipation and that adventure. It can create kind of a healthy, natural high that can replace some of, of the substance use. People in recovery in Utah look at hikes 
like they used to look at bars. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, as silly as it sounds, yeah. have you heard of this one? And they're like, no, but we got to go try it out. Oh, and yeah. then in my active addiction, I used to do that. They'd be like, hey, there's this bar. And it's like, well, yeah, I got to go try it out. Right. But now you're in recovery and it's... we're littered with so many beautiful hikes. We're like, Dota Falls, Angel's Landing. Let's go down to Moab and let's go do this. And rock climbing and all this high adventure stuff. So anyway, sorry to interrupt the story, but I think I think I just wanted to throw that in there to maybe make an explanation in addition, I mean, there are other things to travel, right? I mean, traveling is a, a wonderful thing and meeting new people and going new places. And it's the novelty of it. You know, your brain is always mapping new things. And that's in and of itself enjoyable to kind of be in a new city and see a new place and, and anticipate going somewhere. But there's also a neurochemical aspect to it. So if I can understand this, your rock bottom was that morning at the party, pretty much. That's when you guys, because a lot of times when people think of a rock bottom, they think of something traumatic like my accident or, you know, getting their kids taken away or losing their house or going to jail. I mean, there's everyone's rock bottom is different, but your rock bottom was waking up to a house full of friends or partiers laying in there and going, this is it. And this is not how you guys wanted your life to be. So you decide you're going to go travel. So how does, I, I don't even know how that begins. Yeah. So um, we, we just started planning. We just, uh, we, we decided that that's what we we're going to do. So we quit our jobs. Um, this all took about three months. We quit our jobs. We sold and gave away everything we had. We bought our, we bought a motorcycle on Craigslist and we we left. We uh, we headed south to the border with uh, with the intention of figuring ourselves. So on the motorcycle, that was on the a motorcycle with all of the all the stuff we owned uh, on a motorcycle. Wow! And without anything to come back to. How how many times have we had the all or nothing personality on this show? Besides you, yeah. Is, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's, it's quite That's, that is all or nothing right there. And I'm so all in. What wow. did your loved ones, family, uh, the the party <laughs> friends say? They thought we were crazy, <laughs> crazy. Yeah. yeah, people were really worried about us. Um, and rightfully so. You're going to die. You're going to get shot. You know, all these, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, and it, looking back on it, it was pretty stupid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't know what we were doing. We hadn't even, I hadn't even been on a motorcycle. <laughs> Just to give you a little Did context. you have a motorcycle license? Uh, no, I actually got, got it one. like right, like right before we left. So it's like, I had no experience. Like, it's just like, no, we're doing this. Like. Uh, that's that's uh, it, it's only stupid if it doesn't work out, right? Yes. Yeah. In the beginning, exactly. it's adventurous, and and so you you load up and you head south, and yeah, uh, yeah. So we traveled through Latin America for uh, about a year. Um, we made it down to Medellin, Colombia. Stayed there for on some the motorcycle. Time. On yeah. the motorcycle, oh, yeah. So <laughs> I have trouble driving into Salt Lake on my motorcycle. It's all him. Yeah, we uh, we were you know we were in Mexico for about six months, then Central America for six months, and then you know our intuition guided us to to Colombia. Do you guys even speak Spanish? Uh, Spanglish. Uh, she's a little better. Some Spanish. But. some Spanish, but we didn't when we left though. That which was <laughs> so. But I just for the frame of mind of our listeners and myself and Doctor Matt and everybody. Um, you go from 20 years of hard charging and partying to selling everything you own, buying a motorcycle, getting a license, and heading down south. 
Do, are you guys drinking? Uh, are you still using it when you're going down? Or how, what does that look like? Most of Latin, when we were in Latin America, was, was kind of like this. A lot of empty Weeks. promises to ourselves of, yeah. okay, we should really, you know, cut it back a little bit. And then we'd go back again. And then, you know, something intense would happen. Um, a lot of relationship issues yeah. pop up, you know, put a couple people uh, with addiction issues on a motorcycle it sounds like a movie. <laughs> it could be. See how that relationship works out. I mean, it Go sounds ahead. like a reality television series. I mean, <laughs> we're watching Real Housewives of Orange County. I'd rather see this. For sure. Were you, did you have a goal in mind? I guess that's getting away. Obviously, I think you felt like we, we got to make a dramatic change. But once you started out on the road, were there discussions about something you were looking for? Yeah, I you know for me I wanted to be in control of of my addictions by the time I was forty, and so I had a time limit. It was like okay, this is what we're gonna we're gonna figure it out. And um, what about you, Cass? You know, I think when we first left, I was a little bit in denial as to what how uh, addicted how addicted to alcohol I really was. I think it was he he was kind of was an easy scapegoat, you know. Because uh, <laughs> he's a little bit louder and a little more dramatic and instigates things. And um, after it took a little bit of time for me to realize that that I had a problem. And um, so so the the goal for me was um, to find peace and to find happiness. And um, I didn't have that. And I, I I did realize that before we left that that um, I was struggling emotionally and I, it was easy for me to blame these other things in my life. Like food became this sort of like, oh, I have these stomach issues and this and that. It was like I was playing this game of distracting myself with um, these other obsessions rather than recognizing that I had emotional trauma I needed to deal with. Does that make sense? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And that's um, often a justification that feels very real when you're going through it as a as a especially as a younger person. I remember sitting down with my therapist in recovery and and we've said this on the podcast before, but he goes, Alcohol's not your problem and I go, I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> I'm in rehab. And he goes, No, your problems are your problems. Alcohol is your solution to your problems. He goes, Alcohol has become a problem now because you're dependent upon it and it and, and it's changed your body. Uh, but originally you were running or numbing, or trying to forget things. And that sounds similar to what you were talking about just a minute ago, is that, you know, you would distract yourself from other things with alcohol because if you didn't want to deal with it or you didn't want to feel that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you guys are down in Medellin? Is that what you said? Medellin, yep. Mm-hmm. And do you guys have like an aha moment? Because a lot of times on this podcast, there's an aha moment, and it's where something changes, and you go, huh. Well, I think you go, aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I like yeah. that. Yeah. So uh, when we were in Medellin, we were dealing with a lot of relationship issues. We almost broke up. We decided to to stick with it a little bit longer. And we had this gut feeling to go to um, Spain and go to Barcelona. Um, I'd been there many, many years ago, loved the city. And so we ended up leaving the bike. We decided we were done with motorcycling. And uh, we, we went over... Uh, over to Europe. 
And it was while we were in Europe that、um, we thought, you know, of course, going into the next place will make all your relationship problems go away. It's、no. like having a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. They just follow you right <laughs> over there.、Yeah. And、um, so, yeah, so we were having some, some arguments, and, and we got in a, in a big argument one day, and I decided I needed a little space. So I bought a ticket to Morocco. And, That、uh, is a little space. Yeah, yeah. A little space. You know, another little、continent. space.、Um, and on my way back, I got deported. <laughs> what? <laughs> was, had your visa expired or what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a pretty emotional decision. Not a lot of, not a lot of thinking going on. And I told her about it. It was going to happen. Yeah. And.、Um, Yeah, so I ended up back like, in the United States. He sneaks the, I told you so in a decade later still. Yeah. And so I ended up going back to the United States and spending some time alone and giving him a little space. And、um, so you bring up that aha moment, that, that moment of、um, clarity. Clarity of getting shipped back to the United States、um, with, you know, kicking and screaming、uh, was that moment when I realized that it's okay to be human and do something dumb. Oh, and、man. I hadn't,、uh, I hadn't ever lived that way before. You know, I'd always thought I needed to have everything just right. Everything had to be perfect. There was this, this image that I had to present. And doing something so stupid, like getting deported from Europe, <laughs> put me in my place and realized, ah, I can be human. I can make mistakes and I can still live with myself. And it's let, okay. Let me ask a question that might seem odd to people, but. Was that also sort of a turning around point for your eating disorder?、Um, that, yes, because it was that shift of taking personal responsibility for my problems that, that put me down the path of I'm not, I don't have to be a victim anymore. Well, it's that perfection too, right?、Yeah. Because that's so intertwined with, with most eating disorders where having to present a certain image, having to be just right, having to. To be perfect and, and not let other people know that you're flawed, not let yourself know that you're flawed. And so eating disorders often develop out of that sort of perspective because、yes. it's a, something you can control is the food、yes. and the weight, or you think you can at least, and it feels concrete and controllable. So I wondered if hand in hand, that mental shift also helped with. With the, the eating disorder behavior. For sure, letting go of that,、uh, that image of, of needing to present. And how old and were you at that time? I was 29. Okay, so、yeah. see, there you go. Right out that decade, you have, you have your growing up, your childhood, your adolescence, and you know, you're learning everything from everybody else family, community, church, school, whatever.、Mm-hmm. And then you have about a decade of individuating、mm-hmm. from a late teens to late 20s where. Now you get to try it all out and keep things and throw things out and modify things and kind of become the individual self. That's the ideal way to go through that decade. Not everybody does, but it's often at the end of that decade, at the end of your 20s, where people finally go, you know what? I can just, I'm okay to just be flawed or be human or be normal.、Mm-hmm. I don't have to be so hard on myself. So that's interesting. You're right in there on that timeline of individuating. That's very cool. Yeah. So Cass just got deported. She's finding out who she is back in the States. Stick around. We're going to find out what Palouse is doing wherever he is. All right, Palouse, where are you? So I'm back in Barcelona and, and you know, I've got about. You know, about a month and a half left before my 40th birthday. And I've come so far.、Um, I mean, totally different,、uh, you know, since I started. So are you completely sober or are you just kind of. No, I'm not completely sober, but I'm 
I'm drinking with uh, – it's the ups and downs. Um, you know, I'm, I'm only drinking three or four times a week. And it sounded – correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like your goal wasn't sobriety. You said I. You said, "Tell me what you said." I, you Con- wanted to be. I want to be in control. Yeah. You know, I had. I went to AA, and I, you know, I, I just couldn't. I, I wanted. I always believed that I had control. I didn't want to give anything up. I just wanted to have. I didn't want to have it like be taken advantage of with all these things I'm doing. So that was my goal. Is like I. I it was never end at all. I've tried that. It's not fun for me. And so that was the things like having control. Can I have a drink? Can I have a drink without getting wasted? Can I go and, and, and do something else uh, once a month or whatever, whenever I need to or want to um, without just overtaking my life, life like, like it used to? And do you feel like at this point in Barcelona you had achieved that or not quite? Not quite. Not quite. I was still relying on like having fun and, and, and using alcohol to do these things to, to have, you know, as the vehicle, yeah, as the vehicle. I think a lot of people do that. And that was one of the surprising things that I had to challenge me in my recovery is could I have fun with alcohol? Because I'd always used alcohol as the vehicle to have fun. And I used to say it all the time. I was like, I can do anything and have fun if I got alcohol. And I used to say that it was like a cool thing. And now I look back and go, what a sad statement. Yeah. Because now I can have fun without the aid of any substance or any alcohol. And it's just as much fun as I had when using. And so I, 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 I like that. And so you're, you're, you're almost 40, a month and a half. Uh, you got some ups and downs in Barcelona. Do you have an aha moment where you go, okay, I think I might have this figured out? So yeah, at that time I said, you know, like, I'm like, I'm done. I'm just going to go cold turkey. I'm just, I can do this, you know. And so it was about... Um, Two and a half, three weeks of being sober at the time, and um, I started t- doing some meetups. And I started, I, I joined this group, this uh, Acker yoga, yoga group at the park. And um, so, you know, I'm there um, doing, uh, you know, doing some uh, new new things, new friends, you know, whatever. Just try to like stay focused without, you know, alcohol. Mm-hmm. And uh, the stranger comes up, um, just uh, short. About, I'm pretty short, about the same height as me, Middle Eastern. Guy comes up and says, "Do you meditate?" And you know, I've had a you know, I've I've had this hate love relationship with meditation because I could never do it. I've taken courses on it. I've never been able to do it, and it's something that ten years before, you know, my intuition is like, "You need to learn how to do this." And so when he said that, I was just like, "No, like, why are you talking to me?" And then all my Spanish friends would grab their stuff, all their all, all their belongings, because there's a lot of crime there in, in Barcelona. So they're like, okay, this guy's going to rip us off or something. So it was kind of an awkward thing. And then he mentioned this guy mentioned, uh, do you know about Wim Hof? Now, do you guys have you guys heard about Wim Hof? I have not. Mm-mm. He's uh, he's he's a Dutch guy. He's called the Ice Man. He's a uh, he's the he's the guy that's actually brought this kind of breath style to the masses. And he used to be dubbed like a superhuman. You know, he he has 28 world records uh, for extreme heat and cold. Like he climbed Mount Everest in his underwear. He, uh, he really, yeah. You know, wow. he he can he he's he was in ice for three hours. You know, like just an incredible guy. But he actually came out, you know, 20 years ago and said, "Hey, look, I'm not special. I'm not superhuman. I've just been taught this. Anybody can do this." And that's when he really started teaching to the masses. So this guy comes up and says, "You know, Wim Hof taught me." 
And I barely learned of this guy two weeks before. He's like, give me five minutes. This will change your life. So, you know, there I am, you know, I sit down and he teaches me this, this technique and, you know, and I, I'm doing it for, you know, how many minutes or whatnot. The next thing I know, I'm levitating off the ground, a few centimeters off the ground. No, I'm, I'm kidding, guys. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, man. I was like, that's all Casey's. Yeah. Go ahead, Casey. I, like, I got to call BS on this, man. <laughs> no, you know, actually. Gravity's not- different in Spain. <laughs> yeah. I was like, ah. No, actually, nothing happened. And um, what was strange is that one of my friends asked me a question. I turned around and started talking to her. And next thing I know, the guy was gone. No one saw him leave. He just kind of vanished. It was the weirdest thing. And then I had this gut feeling, like this the same gut feeling that helped us travel around the world. It was this gut feeling like something happened. And so that night I went home and I did three three of these you know, rounds of breath work and I blasted off like to another universe. You did this by yourself or by you? myself. Okay. So he had taught you the technique and then he vanishes, but you felt like I've really got to do this. And so you went home and did it yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I was sober at the time and I felt high. I felt like, I mean, it was, it was the first time in my life that I connected to my higher self and, you know, whatever you want to call it doesn't matter. But like, it was the first time I was connected to something, to source, to love. And it just, I started getting like answers of, of from the past. I started uh, getting, getting the information that wasn't from me that helped me guide me to what I needed to take care of so I could kick these habits. And so I found this, I found this practice. Um, I started doing this twice in the morning and at night and it changed my life. Can you just, it may be complicated. Can you describe it briefly? Like the breathing technique he taught you? Yeah. So it's just uh, you know, you breathe for a certain amount of time, you know, for what we teach, we breathe for two and a half minutes and then there's two breath holds. So you you know you charge your whole body of oxygen and then you hold your breath, which um, you know activates uh, the vagus nerve, which creates your CO two, and but because of that, it puts you into you know your rest and digest. It puts you into these lower brain vibrations, uh, you know frequencies, your alpha and theta, which is uh, is meditation. And when you're able to get down to those lower frequencies, you're able. It's kind of like a big satellite. You're able to, you know. This is like a spiritual practice. It's, I hate you know saying it like that, but you get connected to source, uh, to whatever you want to call it, and your guides. You know, we they it, it exists. Whatever you believe, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's true, and it will guide you. So you're talking more than just this is clarity of mind, but this is actual connection to kind of an, another power. How would you describe it? Yeah, just uh, you know being connected to uh, you know for me, I call it my higher self. And um, it's, you have something to add to it? I think what, you know, it's just connecting to, to your inner knowing, right? So being able to quiet all the clutter out and do this breathwork practice, it puts you into that frame of mind where, yes, clarity of mind and also also that inner knowing that, that kind of can help you so that you can make the decisions that you need to make. Like we all know it. You know, we a lot of times when it comes to getting over addiction, we are always looking for something outside of ourselves to to for the answer. Oh, they might know. They have the answer or they have the answer. And That's every, the addict thought process, right? Like something I put in me yes. is going to make me feel better. Right. And that what this breath work what but this breath work helps us helped us to do is get um that clarity to um just connect with ourselves and realize, oh no, I'm I'm complete with myself. I don't need anything else. 
So how does the boy from Barcelona, with his newfound information of breathing, hook back up with the deported honey back here in Utah? All right, Cass, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I came back and we actually got married for the paperwork, <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> but we were really in love. <laughs> we got married for the paperwork. <laughs> but it, it kind of bought us a little time to, to stay in Europe a little longer. He's he's able to stay to he had citizenship. You in, probably have dual citizenship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that that's how um, that worked out. And when we uh, when I came back and I saw him, I could tell that something was different about him. He was focused. He was clearer. He was kinder. There were so many things that had that had changed. And I thought, like, what are you doing? What's going on? You're you're not the same person four months ago. And um, and so he said, I'm doing this breath work. You got to try it, you know, and he's got lots of enthusiasm, just like, you know, any kind of thing he, he tells me about. I'm like, OK, OK, fine, I'll do it. And um, it took me a little while to get into it and to to really start getting results from it. Um, Did you stop drinking when you came back to the United States? No, no, definitely not. <laughs> I was feeling very sorry for myself. Um, so when I when I got back to to Europe, um, I was still drinking and I was starting to do this breath work and, and I started to do this as a morning routine every single day. And this was the first time I had a morning routine in my whole life consistently um, because the feeling that I got when I did the breath work was motivating, was motivating for me to, to, keep, to keep it up. And at one point um, I went out with a friend and um, we went out drinking and I came back and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't necessarily... Uh, super hungover, but just that little bit of feeling like, oh, I don't really feel that good. So I did the breath work and I went on a really long walk and I started to think about the role alcohol was playing in my life. And I started to realize that this is, this is not what I need right now. And I need to, I need, I need to do, I need to heal and I need to grow. So that's when I, um, I, I stopped drinking and um, and continued doing the breath work. And I started just as Palouse was saying, just we were able to listen to ourselves when we quiet the mind. And um, I got I felt uh, I felt that I needed to go um, get some therapy. I needed some professional help because what I had wasn't normal. And I didn't realize that the, the food obsession that I had wasn't a normal thing. Not everybody's doing like this isn't the normal thoughts that going through people's mind about food. And it was it was my normal, though. And um, with the breath work, it helped me to be able to observe those thoughts. So then I could see, ah, these these this pattern is causing me a lot of of stress in my life. And um, so that's when I ended up going and getting some therapy while I was there. And that that really was a big turning point for me. We're big fans of therapy on this show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I tell anybody and everybody, if you can get a therapist, do it. I mean, it used to be yeah. something you were like, oh, he's got a therapist. But now if you got a good therapist, I mean, you keep that name and number quiet because you don't want to <laughs> share. Well, good therapists can be hard to get into. But uh, what I like about there are lots of different kinds of therapies for different reasons, but there are also there's a term called common factors, you know, things that happen in all therapies that are effective. And one of a common factor result is insight, self-awareness and insight. If you're doing an effective therapy, regardless of what it's for, it sounds like uh, the, the 
combination of the breath work and the therapy helped you create this self-awareness that's empowering because it is like a third person view of yourself, right? You're, you're seeing like, wow, I, and you gain insights that you can't gain when you're in there just processing your daily everything. And that's one of the reasons meditation, however you get there, is so powerful. So you're 40. Are you in control of your vices? Not 100%. But I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm getting there. It's this kind of, kind of switching from, can I find happiness without it? And then it kind of went on to the next, uh, the next evolution of our trip. We, you know, we decided to leave Barcelona and we went up to Eastern Europe and China, and then finally Bali, Indonesia. And um, at this time, um, you know, we like I wasn't drinking. Like we weren't drinking. We had, we were doing really well, you know. But you know, we. We we would we would once in a while, maybe once a week or something, but just trying to find like we're still I'm still getting excited for that one day. I'm trying to find peace with that like I'm still like searching for that still, you know? That makes sense. So um totally on the path where I'm going. Everything's going great. It's, it's just taking time. It's, I'm all right with it. Um but I the breath work, I mean at, at this whole time I was like, how do I share this with people? And when we finally made it to uh, Indonesia we we told ourselves we're like let's just cut it out 100% you know even though we're doing it four times a month whatever it's like let's just cut it out like we don't need it let's let's do this in in bali so we did we uh we went full on and um that's where i met uh, my mentor he was this french guy alex uh, souk and uh you know he was doing these workshops with breath and ice and uh, i i did one of his workshops and i said i and just it was like that's what i want that's what i want to do and so I, I went and approached him and I said, hey, I want you to teach me. I want you to be my mentor. And and he said yes. And then so for the next nine months, we, you know, I was uh, teaching and, and helping him run his uh, his whole business over there and then started the last uh, couple months. He's like, here, here you go. You're going to do your own. And that's how I came to be with uh, with this whole breath. And, and, ice and so and, his process was the breathing plus the ice. Yes. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the ice. Yeah. And so, well, I mean, I've seen the Instagram photos, and I know a lot of people, I mean, even Joe Rogan, uh, you know, they talk about the benefits of an ice bath. Uh, I mean, I don't know how that plays into recovery, but I, I, I'm guessing you guys are going to share it with us? Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of physical benefits of taking ice baths, um, but we like to emphasize the mental benefits, the what's going on um, inside of you to to put yourself into an uncomfortable situation on purpose and then you get to learn how to adapt to that like the ice doesn't change the temperature of the water but what happens to you in just a short amount of time is you get to you get to change your response to this uncomfortable situation so it's the ice bath becomes like a training for adapting to uncomfortable situations because and you it- can apply that to Addiction. Because in my addiction, you put me in an uncomfortable situation, my first go-to is alcohol to get me out of that. You know what I mean? To to, to make that... I think that's true for all of our unhealthy habits. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, food is a huge one. Uh, Screens are a big one nowadays. Diet Coke. Uh, any any sort of thing you put in your mouth, but even things that people don't think of, like taking a nap. I know some people that you stress them out there. It's almost guaranteed you can put them to sleep because <laughs> oh, yeah. it's an escape, right? <laughs> yeah. So there are a lot of things where that's you, you don't know how to adjust to hard things. So you fall back on something that sort of numbs you out. So tell us more about how a person would do that. 
Yeah, so um, you know the the ice bath. Are we still in the ice bath? Sure. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So you, so. Now, I, I like this idea. So you're in the ice bath, and your your body is, I mean, normally like you would be when you're cold, right? You you're having a hard time breathing. You want to get out. You want to probably want to escape it. So yes. how do you shift? I liked what you were saying about um, learning how to adjust to this hard situation. Yeah, so you know when we do the breath work, and if you come to one of our workshops, we do the breath work first. And basically, you when you go into the ice, you go into shock, and you know your fight, flight, or freeze kicks in, and you're like, <gasps> like just freaking out. And in a matter of thirty seconds, you know we train, you know we train the people to be able to switch back out to your sympath, your parasympathetic nervous system, and now you're calm. And it's just a matter of understanding your body and and understanding, and that's kind of like the metaphor. Uh, for life, the, being uncomfortable. And people, you know, we, we avoid being uncomfortable like the plague, you know. And, uh, you know, we avoid those situations of, you know, having conversations with our loved ones or that we should be having or the job we need to quit or whatnot. And, and so the ice bath is that's what it teaches. It teaches resilience and willpower. And for me, it's my medicine. Okay, it's it, it, I do this twice, at least twice a week. And it, and it reminds me because I hate love relationship because it reminds me of who I don't want to be, you know, I get in and I'm like, I don't want to do this. And then it reminds me like, if I want that control of my life, which I have right now that I love, I love who I've become. I love it, love it, love it. But there's always, there's always that little, that voice on this, you know, a little devil on my shoulder. That's like, I have bad days too. And it's like, and, but that's not what you I want. 20 years of neuropathways and habits of doing that, that overcoming 20 years of that is a really big deal. I think the listeners need to just pause and think for a second that when you have spent that much of your life, especially uh, you didn't start when you were 12, but you started when you were still a developing brain. Yeah. And that is so impressive to be able to, to do, deal with that. And you have to expect there will be times when those old pathways get lit up again and you're kind of like, oh, that would be nice. I'm having a hard day. But you feel like this process, this regular practice helps you get through those hard times? Ab- absolutely, because it's just, it's it, it doesn't – I hate it. It's a, it's, it's a love-hate relationship. Well, I, it doesn't sound – I mean, a hot tub, I'm in. You're right. But but an ice bath, ah, it, I mean, it doesn't sound pleasant, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. You never get excited to get in, right? Yeah. But the magic is when you're in the ice bath and you're doing everything opposite that your body wants to do. And so you start to realize that – what seems like not a choice is actually a choice, right? Sometimes we're, when we're panicking, we think that that is a choice or that's, that's just the automatic response. Like we have to, we have we, to fight, flight or yes. freeze. I mean, right. the, it feels like those are our only choices. Right. But what we realize is that there's this tiny little space between that and between when we can make a choice to respond and we can do everything opposite. If we're panicking, we can breathe, breathe, but the box breathing. If we're, um, resisting, we can relax. It doesn't matter how cold the water is. We can still relax. We don't have to tense up. And um, so that's really what, when we learn how to do that and we practice that over and over again, we bring mm-hmm. that into our regular life and realize we For get to For other choose. difficult situations. Yeah. You know, yeah. when we're given information, the only thing we can control is how we react to that information. Right. You, you know what I mean? I mean, that's the only real power that we have. You know, the information's not going to change. It's just how we react to it. Do we accept it? Do we fight it? Do we go with it? I mean, that's the really only power we have. 
You, yeah. you, you know, I mean, I can't control how you're going to react to it. I can't control what you guys are going to do with it. The only thing I can control is how I react to the information when given to me. And it sounds like this has given you choices, and it's letting you know that there are options. It's not instantaneously. We, we don't have to run. We don't have to hide. We don't fight, fight, or freeze. And if somebody wanted to come join your your workshops, they're not going to get just tossed into the ice bath, right? You're going to teach them these skills ahead of time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you know, we have a, our, our our first time first timers. It's like a three hour workshop. We teach you. I just kind of go over like the the science of of breath and what, how it affects your body, and then we I teach you how to breathe. We do a breath a breath session, and and then after that, I teach them how to get in for five minutes. Um, so the first time in, you're in for five minutes. Five minutes. I remember when I was sitting in recovery and they brought in a breath specialist. And I remember once again thinking, what did I get myself into? <laughs> These idiots are going to teach me to breathe. Don't they know I've been doing it for 45 years? Yeah. I pretty much got this breathing down. I haven't died yet. But it wasn't until somebody taught me the art of breathing and the different kinds. And now when I feel a panic attack, because I still get them every once in a while, I, I go to that box breathing. And that really calms me down and gets me to a better place. Uh, and, 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 and the art of breathing and Dr. Matt, I mean, we talk about it when we do the guided meditations with you on this podcast. I mean, it's, you know, the in through the nose and, 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 and all the good stuff. There are a variety of different ways to use breathing. Um, uh, you can, but what's cool is you can teach young children how to do breathing. Uh, a lot of times people need a visual connection while they're breathing in order to stay in it. But we do know that physiologically it makes a, a positive impact. It, it's the fastest way you can get in to slow your heart rate down, dry up your adrenaline, get rid of the cortisol, relax your muscles. And then that oxygen that has been a little bit deprived in your brain uh, helps you function on all eight cylinders or whatever size your brain is. I and, don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Pretty powerful. Yeah. Whatever yours is, it's <laughs> plus one. Okay. <laughs> and and so, yeah, breathing uh, as a technique. And I'll often say when I talk, uh, this is how I introduce it in therapy usually. I'm like, okay, I know this is the most cliche thing your shrink could say, but we're going to practice breathing. And then I'll say, hold on, because <laughs> you, you get the look and it's like, I'm well, paying you for this? Bre- breathing to stay alive, we don't need to practice. You got that part down. But breathing to tap into how to control your body and improve your function and your focus and all of these things, that is a skill. That is a skill just like any other skill. But if you practice it, it becomes more and more automatic and starts to become something that I've I've worked with people. I've been fortunate enough to work with people that have said that by the time they practice it, they can use one good breath in a meeting where they're panicking or in an elevator when they're having claustrophobia and all of that anxiety can melt away. It takes a while to get to that point, but these sorts of practices have been shown over and over again to not just be a psychological practice, but it's a physiological practice as well. It changes your brain chemistry and how your body's functioning in a healthy way. So last question for you both. What does recovery look like for you now? Well, now recovery for us is um, we are able to – it's about control and that's you know about not, not about abstinence but about, about control and not letting anything rule us. And anytime you – know, we, we like to keep, uh, keep our substances in check of course um, but that's, that's what recovery looks like for us. Yeah, it's, uh, you know for where I'm at right now, um, 
I've never felt better. Like I don't need it to be happy anymore. And that's, that's the key. I can go out and have a glass of wine with, uh, with dinner. I can go have a beer here and there, but it's not something I'm just like, Oh, let's go do this all the time. I don't need it anymore. And it took years to get over that, that, that needing of, I can't be happy without alcohol and everything. Cause I, everything I did involved alcohol or drugs, every, every aspect of my life before that. And it's uh, whoever's listening out there. It's not, it doesn't happen that it takes a long time to be able to just disconnect from your brain of, of, of you know, 20 years of alcohol with things and, and trying to find it was a, and it was a challenge the whole, this whole process of, of trying to find peace and happiness without, that was probably one of the hardest things, right, babe? And, you know, now we're able to throw ourselves into this breath work and this ice bath, and that's what gets yeah. us excited. That's, like, yeah. alcohol, it's like not even a big deal. It's, it's about what, it's about throwing ourselves now into, into helping other people find this same type of peace and joy that we've been able to find through this practice. And are you seeing that quite a lot now? I mean, what's the feedback that people give you after they've been through some of your workshops? Yeah, you know, the people that continue to come and and make this into a regular part of their week. Uh, we've had incredible feedback that has been so gratifying. I had a, a gal in our class um, tell me that uh, she she's like, I graduated from therapy, Cass. I'm like, oh, really? Wow, that's great. And she said, I just want you guys to know that this practice was part of it. Yeah. And it's not, you know, therapy for me, I I resonated so much with that because therapy for me on its own wasn't enough. I needed that daily dose with the breath work in order to incorporate incorporate the things that I was learning into my regular life. As a psychologist, I'll validate that. I think one of the biggest criticisms I have about therapy as as a as a treatment and as as a practice is it's often seen through the lens of the medical model which is great for medicine but for for psychology and for therapy we can do better but we have to break that attitude that I'm going to go in once a week or once a month and the the therapist is going to fix me right and and then there's all those days and hours in between therapy visits where you're just struggling with your normal stuff unless you have a great therapist and they're helping you learn how to use cognitive behavioral uh, meditation, mindfulness, and these other practices to make a complete transformation. So actually, if you're in therapy, you should be doing more between therapy sessions than the hour or so that you're in that session. And eventually, I and I tell this to people on day one if, they, if they're a new patient, I said, my goal is to work myself out of a job so that you're doing all this eventually without me. And and I think that uh, when somebody comes in and tells you something like that as a therapist, I'm like, that's amazing. That's wonderful because therapy has been helpful. And now she's developed a mindful meditative practice that she can use for the rest of her life. And and I think we've made it clear. I mean, I meditate every single day. And if I miss a day, I know the difference. And it's it's very valuable to keep yourself grounded and in your best space you can be in. And I'll co-sign what you both just said is that, you know, a lot of people in recovery think uh, abstinence is the ultimate goal. And yeah, I mean, it's one of the goals. But For it's, some people, that's what has but, to be. But it's Absolutely. not enough. You've got to do stuff more. You've got to, you've got to grow. You've got to learn. You've got to do other things. I don't things. think anybody's really living their best life if they're just sober. Yeah. Right. I, I think there's, so, we know there's so much there's more. There's so many, there's, there's, to there's it. therapy, there's exercise, there's meditation, there's breathing, there's living, there's all kinds of different things. 
So I think this has probably been one of my most favorite podcasts because this is a recovery story like we've never had on here. We've never had anyone sell their stuff, get on a motorcycle, drive to Medellin, end up in China and Barcelona, get deported. I mean, I mean, it really it's is. It's a pretty good story. It's a good story. Yeah, I agree. And, and it's not the recovery story that we're used to here, you know, and that doesn't mean that it's not valid. And that's what their recovery looks like. And that's what I've always told everybody in this. You've got to find Find out what your recovery looks like. How many ways are there? There's a million ways oh, up Sober Mountain. Right. You know, and right. whatever works for you, whatever makes sense. And, and and that's that's why I love this podcast is because it's two people doing what they want, set goals, achieved them, and are doing wonderful things. For and helping other people, which is really I think a sign of change is when whatever you're if you've changed from an inward focus to an outward focus. If you're helping other people, I think that means you've changed for sure as a person. So what did you like about this podcast? Well, I still have the, well, I mean, I liked everything about it. I love this. We are going to do this. Or yeah. I'm going to do it. I'll go do it with you. If yeah. Rob Eastman can do it, I no, that's not. Yeah, he can do way more than I can do. But, <laughs> but bench is a lot. Yeah, he, like probably a hundred pounds. Ooh. And um, uh, but I'm going to do this. I I really really want to do this because this is a meditative practice I've never tried, and so we're going to do this. But what my what I'm hung up on is the mystery. What's the mystery? Did you ever see that guy from the park again? No. I don't. I don't even know his name. I love it. I love I it. Just, you never saw him. He just like he just, he just blew into your life, left you with this practice, and then vanished. I, you know, I, I still this day I think he's a guardian angel. You know, something that you know that because it was just freaking weird. Like it, yeah. But I think what's really cool about that. Uh, I, I mean, that would have been fine if you guys are best buddies now. But <laughs> I love the mystery that you never saw him again. And I think what that emphasizes is when you have something good to share, open your mouth. You never know what effect it's going to have on somebody. If you're in the airport, if you're in the park, if you're in an elevator, if you have something that you feel like you should share with somebody that's valuable, do it. Because look at the the whole right. life change for the two of you just because this kind of odd person you know, shared something with you in the park. I think that's amazing. A chance meeting with a stranger yeah. changes yeah. life. Absolutely. So if people want more information about what you guys do, uh, your workshops, your breathing, your ice baths, all the good stuff, where do they go? Yeah, they can go to our website, InnerAlchemyLiving.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also pretty active on Instagram and Facebook at InnerAlchemyLiving. And, um, yeah, we have classes on Sundays. Uh, in the fall, we're going to start doing a weekly class in the evening. Um, we'll do online um, one-on-one sessions. We do um, group group private groups as well. So you can find all that information on our website. So a while ago, you got married for the paper. <laughs> Why are you married now? <laughs> because we have so much fun together. <laughs> I love it. We actually love each other. Yeah. <laughs> we actually, I, my mom's actually a good person and I love my wife. <laughs> just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, just, just, just to put it out there. Thank you for stopping by today and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. Don't forget, it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast.
The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.